0: Before we begin, we'd like to note that the views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of the Department of Defense or any of its components, including the US Army, Navy, and Marine Corps, nor do they represent the views of any other agency of the US government.
1: listening to Combat Exclusion, where we explore the realities of the U.S. military's gender integration efforts. I'm Chandler, former Army officer and 2017 West Point grad.
0: And I'm Johanna, an aspiring judge advocate and 2018 West Point grad. Thanks for joining us.
2: Out of the 50 women I spoke to, 21 were sexually assaulted. Um, And 47 of them described multiple instances of sexual harassment. And again, I didn't ask about harassment. In an organization that is really trying to take this seriously, in an organization where there are plenty of rules and policies about sexual assault, how is it still such a pervasive issue
1: today we have a very special guest. Her name is Dr. Bona. She is a sociologist with research focusing on gender, race, and organizations. She's also an assistant professor of criminal justice at the University of New Haven, and is currently working on a book about sexual harassment and assault within the U.S. military and its connections with sexism. So she's the perfect person to talk to today about the issues of sexual harassment and assault within the military, which is obviously not a gendered issue, but is one that definitely affects the retention rate of female service members. Members. So welcome, Dr. Bonas. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: Well, Dr. Bonas, we're going to go ahead and get started with our first question. And really, we just want to open up to you to tell us about your research.
2: Sure. Um, my research is about women's experiences in the in the United States military. And I have interviewed 50 service women across um, the Army, Air Force, Marine Corps and the Navy. I started the project with an interest in sexual harassment. I had a background in, in rape research before I started the study. But when I was designing the study, I thought to myself, well, maybe this issue isn't what's the most important to service women. And so I actually developed a really general interview guide where I asked women to prioritize what they thought was important. So some of the questions I ask are, can you share with me three of your most prominent military experiences or military memories? Uh, tell me about the transition between from civilian to service member. Um, And it was in those prominent memory questions that people tended to talk about sexual harassment and assault. Uh, I would say that out of the 50 interviews, all but three women talked about pervasive sexual harassment in the military. And so that's sort of how the project took shape after that.
1: So um, what was kind of the central question that
2: propelled your study forward? I started with the question, like I said, I had a background in rape and in sexual assault and everyone had been hearing about, I think the Invisible War documentary had come out and everyone had been hearing about military sexual assault um, instances that that really made national media headlines, right? So if we think back to 2003 with the Air Force Academy, um, there were several sexual assaults that were uncovered and widely discussed. So the, the from the 90s to the 2000s, every couple of years, these sexual assaults made national media attention. And, but I saw the military was also progressively making more and more policies trying to address and educate people about sexual harassment and assault. So I started with the question of how in an organization that is really trying to take this seriously, in an organization where there are plenty of rules and policies about sexual assault, how is it still such a pervasive issue and then the second question, once I started to think about, well, what's important to service women? Is this the issue that's most important to service women, or what are the issues that are important to service women? So, is this dual um, interest for me?
0: And so, in the course of your research, um, what has it really revealed about the military's culture surrounding sexual harassment and assault, and what what have you
2: kind of found throughout your research? Well, the answer, I think, the answer to the, my main research question, uh, which was how does this organization with all these excellent policies Have this pervasive issue of sexual harassment and assault, and I think I found that one it does right, and two, the answer is is why the question is why does this happen and why does it persist, and I think the answer lies in the interactions and in the culture of the military, which I think is an extremely gendered culture, and extremely gendered means that almost every interaction comes down to some sort of. Meaning around gender, right? And so the way that the military space is organized is is related to gender. The way that people interact is related to gender. There are gendered insults um, that are used against men and women in the military. There are um, you know a lot of slut discourse, right? Anytime a woman would talk to a man uh, in my research, she was almost always branded a slut. And so when we think about what it means to be gendered and hypermasculine, right, what is valued in the military is hypermasculinity, is warrior masculinity, it's actually a specific term that researchers uh, who study the military have developed. Um, And when that becomes just embedded into every single interaction, it produces sexual violence, vulnerability and sexual harassment, vulnerability uh, for everybody, but but for women who are particularly denigrated in this space. So I think the answer comes down to the way that um, gender and masculinity and femininity, including the um, denigration of femininity is built into military trainings, but then also everyday military interactions. Um, And then the fact that military bases for, for enlisted people, especially, are a blend of work and social and personal and home spaces. So there's no leaving these dynamics at work because work is permeating, um, you know, the military is permeating more than just the work life.
1: How did you find this culture of warrior masculinity impacted both male and female service members? And what are some examples that you encountered over the course of your research?
2: Sure. Um, I don't study. I, ha, I have interviewed men. Uh, the men I've interviewed are uh, mostly lawyers in the in the Marine Corps. So I've interviewed eleven men um, who are lawyers, but I don't necessarily ask them the same questions I ask the the service women I interview because um, those interviews are about their their experiences in the courtroom. Um, but so I don't study men, so I can't answer for men. I can answer what other scholars have found, and then it's that both men and women feel like they are held to this warrior standard. And um, one I had one interviewee who said, I wanted to be deployed and I wanted a combat deployment because it's like leveling up. And so she used this sort of video game language, like you're leveling up, you're powering up. And basically the way she spoke about that was that she could take that into future interactions with people. And she did after she deployed. And after she was on a combat deployment, she would use that to denigrate and Insult other service members who are trying to be rude to her who didn't have combat experience, right? So it is ultimately a hierarchy. When we when we think of masculinity, it's not static, it's not fixed, it has localized meanings. In the military, math, there's always a masculinity hierarchy. And in the military, the highest, the most valued, the most rewarded, the most coveted status is that warrior masculine, that combat masculinity. And it it can be embodied by men and women right? And so men and women are both trying to achieve that. Um, And so I think one of the things that I try to do in my research is I'm trying to come up with a concept of warrior femininity, right? That incorporates this idea that it doesn't have to be associated with masculinity to sort of take away that um, hyper-masculine meaning behind it. But ultimately, There is a hierarchy of masculinity with warrior at the top. And what that ends up doing is it encourages in in many instances, the denigration of women and femininity, right? And that's why we have all of these sort of gendered insults, right? If you are using the term pussy, for example, to call somebody weak, uh, that is a gendered and feminized insult. And that happens all the time. The women I spoke with talked about that happening. Um, In some cases they were told you can't say things like pussy, right? To people you're not supposed to say it. Uh, So in, in one case of a woman who was in the air force academy um, this one man would say female, really weird. He'd go female. Oh, the females are letting us down. And it was clear that that was meant to be a gendered insult, uh, but he wasn't actually using, you know, bitch or pussy or, or something like that. And so, It's what people aspire to. I think a lot of the people I spoke with aspired to it at some point, whether they remained wanting to aspire to the warrior uh, status um, throughout their military career, that certainly changed uh, for some women, but it's what people aspire to do and what it means. The military creates the meanings around it. And it's often aggression, assertiveness, bravery, um, you know, and all these things that you're kind of graded on, right? If in the Marine Corps, in, your, um, in your, review your in your view, or in your fit rep, you're you're evaluated on things like courage, um, on things like judgment, right? And what what you know what does that really mean, right? The, we put gendered meanings on on those words as well.
0: So we've we've talked a lot about um, the degradation of femininity. Um, could you also expand a little bit about the engendered concepts of what makes a good soldier versus a bad soldier? Um, and then how do these concepts become engendered and then and how does that impact the organization as a whole?
2: Yeah, I think and this is this how do those concepts become gendered? So what does it mean to be a good service member, right? So when you when you can conjure up in your head an image of the ideal service member? what are we drawing on? Are we drawing on imagery that we've seen our whole lives? Are we drawing on movies and TV shows, right? Like band of brothers. Um, it's often a brotherhood or a masculine image that comes to mind. And this is no different on military bases where, um, there are lots of posters. I think I saw one that was like Marines run towards tyranny. Um, you know, and it's a Picture of a bunch of men and, and weaponry and tanks and things like that. It's almost always images of men, and I, I I want to get the number right, but in like some eight minute video, I think um, the Marine, I think it was the Marine Corps. Um, There was you know only seconds of footage of women in some sort of promotional video, and and um, I can find the exact information. It's probably
1: with a concerted effort to include images of women as well is the interesting part of that.
2: Well, and I think someone was. Um, Someone who was in charge of developing the video was approached about it and they are like, oh, well, we're not really going to worry about how much we feature women. That's not really the problem that we're focusing on. Like we have bigger issues in the military. Right. And so this sort of image who's represented as the ideal service member in image. Right. When we think about movies, television, posters, but then also. What are the attributes of a good service member or the ideal service member? So, in the general workplace broadly, there is this notion um, that the ideal worker is a specific kind of person, right? And it's often p- uh, pitted against this um, against parenting and motherhood, right? So, the ideal worker and the ideal mother are sort of these opposite identities. And that has been a problem for women who uh for people who are pregnant, right, in the workplace. That's no different from the military because a pregnant service member is sort of the is also sort of seen as this opposite identity of the ideal service member. Because they can't deploy, right? They uh, are often have reduced trainings, obviously to accommodate the pregnancy. But all of these pregnancy accommodations become seen as sort of this hyper feminine identity and they become seen as um Someone who's just cannot possibly be the best service member because they're not physically able to sacrifice their body for um the for the institutional, for the institution, for the country, et cetera. So, what does it mean to be brave? What does it mean to have courage? Why are those the values attributed to service members, and what those meanings are? All those things are gendered, um, and so it's not just the imagery; it's also the values and how the military teaches those values in training, right? In um, and, and it encourages those values in peer evaluations of leaders, right? When you're in training, it it always always espousing those values throughout training and throughout, you know, when you get to the schoolhouse, when you get to your duty station, it's really, um, kind of pretty pervasive what those meanings are. And they're almost always valuing masculinity or what we would think of as, as, as traditionally masculine
1: attributes. Yeah. You talked a little bit about the concept of warrior femininity. Could you, Mm -hmm. um, expand on that a bit and just kind of explain what that would look like and how it would benefit the armed forces?
2: I think that the military is very hung up on the gender binary. Right. And so because the military is so hung up on the gender binary, I think it needs to have an understanding that femininity is valued and should be valued um, or that women are valued. Right. And so I don't necessarily want to reify the gender binary by inter I I haven't decided if I want to introduce the concept of warrior femininity yet. It's something I'm toying with. Mm -hmm. I think it would be helpful Um, for at least this generation of service members to start thinking of something that they highly want and desire to be associated with women to kind of combat or to counteract all of the value of of hyper-masculinity. Though I don't know if a term that's reifying the gender binary would be helpful long-term, if that makes sense. No, that's very fair.
0: (laughs) So I think there was something that I, I, I'd I like to ask you about when you were talking about the women sacrificing their bodies. And I think that there's a commonality that we, that we see in that the military is a very physical organization and that physicality is a very important part of the job that we do. Um, and it definitely contributes to the arguments about whether women should be in the service or not. So could you kind of talk about how um, physical ability has on gender in the organization and kind of how that showed up in your research when women spoke about it? Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. Um, so phys- physically, I think physicality is one of the main arguments that have been used historically against for women being in the military and then for women moving to combat arms. It's almost always comes down to this question of physicality. Right. Um, and the argument always seems to go, well, men are physically stronger on average than women. Um, and therefore, right, they should be these positions should be reserved for them, et cetera. One of the things that I as a researcher really value is research, and I think one of the things that we need to look at and recognize is that women have historically been excluded from research on uh, biomedicine and exercise. And in fact, until the 1990s, um, there was the National Institute of Health Revitalization Act that forced any federally funded research program to to have to include women in studies on exercise and biomedicine and physicality. So almost all of the research we had until then was based on men's experiences and men's bodies. So of course, when we're thinking about it from a research point of view, that's gonna show a real bias in research, right? Um, And so when you're developing research on strength and exercise based only on men's bodies, it's not gonna be surprising that the measures are going to uh, value men and men's bodies more than women, right? Newer research, um, and I can point you to some people who study this. I don't study this. Um, Newer research has found that there are some things that women test physically better in than men. One of them um, is, I think his name is Dr. Lopez, and he studies air rifle competitions um so you know that sporting event in the olympics and he finds that women's scores on average are better than men's and he, he tries to break down you know why he thinks it is women's bodies are better at that but regardless of you know who of of who we think is stronger and the perceptions we have of strength the perceptions we have of who's better at shooting rifles who's better at hitting targets what we need if the goal is to be a well prepared or the best prepared fighting force right you should have research that reflects the bodies of that force that helps enhance the performance of those bodies um and those bodies that might be different right and there might be different training like um recommendations from that research that we just don't know because we haven't seen Um, that research hasn't included both men and women historically. And so we should have research on all those bodies. We should have training programs that enhance performance as well as training programs that enhance performance in situations those people will be in, right? And so um, whether that's a desert area, whether that's a jungle, right? We need to think a little bit more about how to enhance bodies and research is the way to do that. So just having women represented in those studies is something that is really important. I think that, um, I don't, and then in my own research, what do women do in terms of trying to show physical strength? They feel like they have to be better. Right. And so they have to outpace men. They have to do better on runs. They can never be at the bottom part of the hike, you know, or they're going to be, um, pointed out as women. So these things that happen when, when something becomes gendered, if a man is in the last third of the hike, um, it's not gonna be like, Oh, you're look, you're letting all the men down in in the military if a woman is in the last third of the hike it's like oh look the women can't do it right and so it becomes an individual becomes blamed for you know not just her you know her difficulty keeping up in certain exercises but it becomes emblematic that women don't belong and so that's sort of what what the trouble is for the women in my sample that experienced this they just said they had to do better be better they had to physically be stronger they had to hide physical pain and they had to lie about physical pain uh, because they didn't want to be seen as someone who was always going to medical um or always going to the doctor because that's perceived as weak and and a bad service member and i th- i know that men do that too right you don't want to be seen as someone who has physical pain, but it is affecting women as a whole when one woman is blamed for, you know, oh, look, you're proving that women don't belong.
1: Right. I think it's really interesting that you mentioned the biomedicine aspect of it, because um, I know that there's currently an effort to try and change the body composition standards within the army, specifically the, the ones for women, um, because they seem to be outdated at best, um, which, which seems to be a medically informed opinion, given that BMI itself generally is considered to be a bit outdated at this point. So, so it's really interesting that you say that. I I kind of want to steer the conversation back toward the culture of sexual harassment and assault, because I think that all of these factors that impact women kind of contribute to that issue, which I think is the point of what you're saying. Statistically, among the women that you interviewed, to what degree was sexual harassment, harassment and assault prevalent? And what resources did those service members end up trying to
2: use? And what did that look like? Out of the 50 women I spoke to, 21 were sexually assaulted. um, And 47 of them described multiple instances of sexual harassment. Three of them said, oh, harassment wasn't really a problem um, for me, but I saw it a problem for other for other people and again i didn't ask about harassment so um i asked at the end of the interview for the three women that br- didn't that didn't bring it up because it was so pervasive in the other narratives and so and that's when they said oh no it was for other women but not for me so i didn't ask about harassment right so 47 out of 50 women brought up harassment as a pervasive problem for them um it, through other questions and so it's a huge issue and and i think over of them experienced what a phenomenon that I developed a a term called bureaucratic harassment. So when we think of harassment, there's sexual harassment, which includes things like uh, lewd comments, um, inappropriate comments, sort of sexual advances, unwanted sexual advances. Then there's uh, what some scholars tease out as gendered harassment. So comments like women don't belong or you're weak, um, you're a pussy, sort of denigrating women in general or whatever. And then there's um, bureaucratic harassment, which is when sexual harassment or non-sexual harassment is being achieved through military policy and military bureaucracy. And so out of all the women, uh, 47 out of 50 of them experienced multiple forms of these. And then 21 of them were sexually assaulted in their service. Some of them were sexually assaulted more than once. Um, A weird statistic that is is prevalent in other research is that once you've been sexually assaulted once, uh, you're more likely to be a victim of sexual assault again. And I did find that consistent for the women in in my sample who were sexually assaulted. One of the things that I think is interesting about the military is that it is really attractive to people who are trying to escape something. And for people who, particularly young people who um, don't have a lot of money and are trying to escape something, right? Joining the military at 18 gives you a career, gives you a house, gives you money, and um, it gives you an escape. And so what I found in my sample is not surprisingly, a lot of people who enlisted at 18 were running away from abusive homes, including um, child abuse, neglect, and sexual abuse. And the military kind of knows this um, I think that they could do a better job of addressing that early childhood trauma in their, you know, by offering programs and services to people right when they join, that would then help them cope with that rather than, you know, then experience the military as a place that replicates that trauma for them. Um, so you're asking about the culture, how many of them were sexually harassed? And, uh, did you have a specific question about the, their experiences?
0: No, I think um, we really want you to expand a little bit more about the bureaucratic harassment, because I think that's a really um, interesting concept that you brought up. And, and to your point earlier when you spoke about, you know, the Army is clearly very invested in changing their, you know, the culture in the Army and how does an organization that's so dedicated to preventing sexual harassment and assault um, still have um,
2: these issues. So if you could kind of you know, expand on that, we would we would love to hear more about it. Okay, sure. So bureaucratic harassment is the active manipulation of administrative rules, of regulations, of things like counseling statements that combine with military features like protected aspects of military of the military, like the hierarchy. Discretion, um, and then just the, and then also the blending of work and personal life. All of these things are wrapped up in um, allowing the military bureaucracy to be a tool of harassment rather than something that can help victims. Even policies that are designed to help victims of sexual assault are used against victims because of this discretion. And in other workplaces, um, so for example, um, there's a, a study about pregnancy discrimination um, in civilian workplaces, and it's pretty easy to track pregnancy discrimination uh, because they say like, oh, look, you know, you you punished all these pregnant people and then ultimately fired them and you didn't do it here to these non-pregnant people. So in the military discretion and the ability to make decisions based on discretion is a protected aspect of of military command Um and so if you say something like, oh, well, look, you you only did this to women, right? Or you only did this to pregnant women, you're like, oh, no, well, look, I marked them down on something like courage on their fit rep, right? And so it became, I didn't ask again about harassment. I certainly didn't ask about bureaucratic harassment, but over half the women talked about how they felt like the military system or that commanders who are in charge of them were using every single rule they could to damage their careers and ultimately to one, to try to kick them out or to try to, you know just get them moved out of their unit or get them away. In one case that I, I kind of bring this example up all the time, a woman was a pilot in the Navy and she was she, a new uh, commander rotated into the unit and sort of said things like, "I don't believe women belong in aviation um, and would make you know jokes about women not belonging in the Navy. Um, and she, I can read a, the quote that she has. She said, I never took anything to it. And then slowly, some things started happening. All of a sudden, I'm not getting put on flights. Other things start occurring. And then he tries to pull my flight qualifications. It just didn't add up. So, what ended up happening is he tried to persuade her to um, move to a desk job when he first got there to stop flying. And she was like, No, I don't want to stop flying. Then he just stopped putting her on the schedule. So, he has. You know, he has discretion over who flies, who doesn't fly. She's not put on the schedule. Again, he tries to motivate her to move to a desk job by saying, look, you know, you're not getting enough flying hours. Ultimately, she says no. She keeps saying no. And he fails her on an exam that she has to take. Um, Again, because his discretion allowed her, she wrote a sentence wrong with two words that were incorrect. And he had the discretion to fail her or to say, oh, you can redo this section. So he failed her on the exam. You had, she had 90 days to retake the exam, but he prohibited her from retaking the exam. Um, he said that you're not allowed to retake the exam. And then she was formally reprimanded for not taking the exam in the 90-day period. And they tried to take away her flight qualifications um, as a result of not retaking that exam. So there were multiple little bureaucratic steps in this example that show that what this person wanted to achieve was to get this woman off, you know, out of his unit. He wanted to, her to transfer to a job that would be out of his purview. He tried to do it um, multiple ways, but ultimately he was able to do it through the bureaucratic system and his power embedded in that system. The fact that he set the flight schedule, the fact that he graded the exam or or could take the exam and grade it, the fact that he, as a commander, could tell her, hey, you can't retake the exam. It's weird, right? The military commanders can say things and they're not supposed to, you know, give you orders that are harmful to you, but they can write a military protective order. Unlike in the civilian world, where, where you have to go to court to get a protective order against a, a, an abuser, in the military—it's just your commander saying, "Don't go near that person," right? So sometimes, like their word is actually law, like, and so it, it becomes complicated whether or not you should, you have to listen, or when you need to listen, right? So then, um, ultimately, he is able to use his power in the bureaucratic system to ground her, she stops flying. Um, And then he tried to pull her qualifications. She successfully maintained her qualifications, but she had to spend a lot of time and energy reporting this incident. Um, And then ultimately she was able to keep her qual, but left that job. Um, And so multiple bureaucratic policies were used, but only because that person had so much power and hierarchy and discretion, was he able to achieve what he did through the bureaucratic system. That's just one example of how the bureaucracy can be really used against people. Um, The others are just making it really difficult for women to access things like postpartum policies or policies for victims. I had another woman who was pregnant and you need to have a pregnancy profile um, usually so that you don't have to do your physical testing after you had a baby. Um, And he basically wouldn't give her time leave time to go to the doctor to get the doctor to say, the doctor had to sign a piece of paper that said she just had a baby, even though she clearly had just had a baby. And he wouldn't give her the leave time to go um, get the doctor, to, to go to the doctor's appointment to, to get this piece of paper written. Then he wrote her up for being a, um, basically, she says in her words, he put an administrative flag on me to say that I'm a fat soldier. Right. And so again, we see that there's multiple bureaucratic um, policies used against her, and, and you know, to establish a paper trail that she's a, a poor soldier when, in fact, she just had a baby. And so um, the bureaucratic aspect is really damaging because it's also a paper trail that follows you. So I'm, I'm sure, you know, like your post-service uh, papers can be brought up by civilian um, employers. Right. So a DD-214. Anyone can see if you were if you were discharged. Right. Other than honorably, someone's going to be able to see that um, and. And at times these women were threatened with that if they didn't if they didn't comply or they didn't listen, um, that this would happen to them. And so there's also just a paper trail, uh, you know, if the administrative flag on this person, for example, could be looked at by by anyone in the military, right? And it can damage the longevity of their careers.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, It's interesting in the context of some congressional acts to kind of limit the power of commanders, specifically in instances of sexual harassment and assault, that you bring up the bureaucracy and the power that commanders wield within the military framework. Um, Do you think that commanders should have or that it would help the culture to have commanders with a reduced sense of power under USCMJ across the board or just specific to sexual harassment and sexual assault? Or do you think that there's just a limitation to what bureaucratically we can do and that it just doesn't have the ability necessarily to protect victims?
2: So like the policies are fine, right? Um, The love and the policies for sexual harassment and, and assault are good policies, I think. Um, They offer several um, victim-centric policies that I would often recommend for other workplaces to have, um, but they're just not executed well because the culture prioritizes masculinity and prioritizes and really denigrates not just femininity, but victimization, right? So if you're like, if if you think of a warrior, well, what's the opposite of a warrior, right? Like a victim. And so because in a space where victimization itself is a denigrated identity, you just don't have people thinking the bureaucracy is going to become a tool of whatever the culture is, right? So you really need to change the culture to then change the way the bureaucracy is implemented. An example that I always think of is the military is very big on suicide prevention. And I think a lot of people are taught very early on, like, you need to watch for other service members in distress, right? Like, suicide is not okay. It's a problem that we are all responsible for. The military does not have a similar approach to sexual assault, right? They don't teach, like, sexual assault is a problem we all need to be on the lookout for. We need to, you know, be good. Bystanders, you don't like let somebody um, harass somebody in your presence, right? It's not the same thing as this um, prevention of suicide or to be on the lookout for suicide. And what we see is that a lot of it doesn't, the military, you know, can't prevent suicide, right? But it tries to encourage other service members to be a part of that project in a way that it doesn't do with sexual harassment and assault. So it only is handling sexual harassment and assault from the policy side and from the legal side right? But so many of the women I spoke to, not most of them didn't report what happened to them. So they're not even getting to use the policies, right? They're not even getting to reporting. Um, Some people were actively prevented from reporting. Um, And this, again, is another example of the power of bureaucracy. Uh, In one case, a woman was prevented from reporting because they said uh, that they would take her leave away for Christmas. And she said the only thing she wanted to do if they had to investigate, they were going to take away her Christmas leave. And that's sort of a real threat, right? When you're away from your house and you just want to be um, back home with your support networks, she ended up dropping it so she could go home. And so that's a real threat. Uh, it was leave that was already approved and she's told they would take it away. She tried to request masks um, on that person who threatened to take away her leave. And um, I'm gonna read you the quote from her. She tried to request masks, but the Sergeant who uh, was, the guy who answered the phones for the major she tried to speak with called down to her boss, uh, the one she tried to request mass on, said, hey, sir, do you know that you have some devil dogs in here trying to go around you? And so, again, like when we have she wasn't even able to access the major that she was trying to talk to because this sergeant called down to her boss. I think I think he was a captain um, and just prevented that from happening. Um, and so. I think that that again, the bureaucracy becomes a tool of the culture, and it becomes a mechanism of power um, that others can wield. And when men have most of the power, then and that masculinity is the, you know, main value, then we're going to see situations like this play out, despite policies and and using policies against women
0: so I, I really um i appreciate your conversation about the bureaucratic systems i think that that resonates with us and that we we do see that that paper trail that gets built uh, against service members especially women um, and their ability to um, report and receive care but could you could you kind of elaborate on potentially um, how the bureaucratic systems impact our abilities uh, like our service members ability to re- like report and receive care and on the sense that like the policy is very confidential. Did you see anything in, in your research that kind of showed that like women weren't able to coordinate the care that they needed, um, because, you know, everyone's either being too general about it or too close-lipped about it. And so they couldn't really access it.
2: Right. Yeah. So like, um, so there, there are two types of reporting, right? So there's restricted and unrestricted reporting, um, which I'm sure you're all familiar with. Um, and so, you know, if you, if you go unrestricted reporting, it's supposed to, Um, basically start up both a legal and medical and therapeutic services, right? And these services, there is, there has been a really, a much larger effort um, to coordinate those services for, for victims. Um, There are great offices. I know, I know that the army has one, but in the, in the Marine Corps, it's called the the, um, victim legal counselor. Uh, This is a individual law office that is dedicated to just helping victims, not just a sexual assault, but all types of victims, navigate the legal process, and they're really there to represent the victim's interest. They can object, right? There's third seat on the bench. They can object in a court martial if the prosecution or the defense aren't infringing on their um, their client's rights, um, and that's really important. Uh, that's really unlike anything I've ever seen, um, because you know, even in the in the civilian world, we know that the prosecution is representing the state right? They're not representing the victim. They may rely on the victim testimony, but having someone there to advocate for the victim can be really important. We also see a lot more commanders and um, commands in general listening to the rights of the victim because of the VLC, I would say. So they will say things like, well, what are the victim's wishes in this case? And I've spoken, I've interviewed military lawyers as a part of my research. And one of the things they'll talk about is some some of their... um, commanders will say like we're taking anything to court martial that the victim wants to take forward that has enough evidence to take forward right and so um you know there is support there what was the original question sorry the
0: right, right. so you know what you're saying is that there you know with the two processes um, oh, okay. There, yeah, yeah. uh, okay Yeah. there's definitely there's definitely like space where you know there's a lot of energy that's put towards taking care of the victim, but then there's also spaces where it seems like the victim has a really hard time navigating it. So could, yeah. we're seeking um, to elaborate on that.
2: Sure. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Um, so I think like there are great policies in place. There are great services in place. However, it can be really hard to access those policies for a variety of reasons. One is the fear of being, you know, just the trauma of sexual violence is going to be different for everyone. Um, some people are processing what happened to them. The military has a lot of rules and regulations, and they also have a lot of reporting streams, right? There are lots of different representatives, and the military is trying to say, like, oh, look at all these different types of people you could go to to report. Sometimes that's confusing and overwhelming because someone feels like they're doing it wrong, right? They, they fear that they could be going to the wrong person. Um, some people are mandatory reporters, right? So if you say something to a certain person, then that goes, maybe you didn't want to report it, Um and it ends up getting reported. So it becomes a really complicated situation for victims. And then some victims are are just discouraged and unable to report. And that sort of is really frustrating to, to read about and to hear about when people tell me about that, that they tried to report something like in this case, this woman tried to report a sexual assault and she was told her leave would be canceled for Christmas if they had to investigate. So basically intimidating them to drop the case. There was another example, of a woman trying to use a victim-centric policy, which was an expedited transfer. Um, You can request a transfer if you're a victim of sexual assault. And I think now they're making it for sexual harassment as well to go to a different base, right, to to get away. And in this particular instance, a woman tried to use that policy. She was told she could use that policy to go anywhere she wanted, to any base she wanted. She tried to move close to her support systems and she was moved pretty far away from that. So she asked to go to the Southeast and she was moved to the Northwest. And um, she was really then far removed from her support systems. She was far removed from the original base where the assault occurred. Then that made her not wanna travel back and forth to testify at the court-martial. And so even victim-centric policies, which sound really great on paper, if they can be used and mobilized to cause harm to victims. And I think that that's what's really problematic is that the policies exist, but how they're implemented, access to those policies, knowledge of those policies. um, All of those things are constrained by individuals positions. And then also when you have power in the bureaucracy, you know, you have knowledge of the rules that you can use against people and you know the ways to work around those policies if you desire. Right. So I'm sure the person who transferred her to the um, northwest was able to do so without looking like they were penalizing a victim, but the victim definitely felt it as a punishment for reporting.
1: Um, in the context of combat arms integration, and, and just to continue this conversation about how policy can have an impact on, on culture, to a dec- but only to a degree, what do you think about the leaders first policy effort toward integration, which for those who don't know, is that the military made sure that there were at least, I believe, two female leaders, they later made it one, which was either an officer or a non-commissioned officer within the unit prior to bringing in lower enlisted service members. Um, what are your thoughts on that and the implications of it? In the context of sexual harassment and assault in the military
2: culture, I I think that's an important question, and I and I think that um, I think at first I there's a reason to understand why leaders first makes sense, right? And so there is research; it's older research, but it's from um, Sadler and colleagues from 2003 that says that in command in units where commanders support sexual harassment or encourage sexist sexist talk or don't shut down sexist talk service women are more likely to be raped in those units. So that even that like statistic alone, that knowledge alone is like, oh, well, that makes sense, right? Leaders first make sense to have some women representation um, in order to maybe make a better climate. But it's problematic in so many other ways, right? Because one, that assumption is that women are automatically going to be better at handling sexual harassment. They're not always better at handling sexual harassment than men. They're not in better positions to shut down sexual harassment than men. Right. And then it also really slows integration. Right. And so I think that it slows integration in a variety of ways because it's ensuring that, okay, well, we're not even going to have women in these units until there are two leaders. Now there's now it's only one, et cetera. And then it also puts the onus on women. Right. So it's up to, it's up to women. The success of integration falls on the women leaders. Right. And so, um, if they don't do well, and they might not do well because now they might be targets, right? If you're representing integration and people don't want integration, men don't want integration, they could then um, harass or try to sabotage those women leaders. And then if, it's, if they don't do well in those positions, it's going to be like, oh, well, look, integration doesn't work, right? And so um, it becomes the women's problem and the job is the perception is that it didn't work when in reality the military has been circumventing its own combat exclusion policy for for years before it repealed the combat exclusion um ban and so if the military successfully circumvented its own policy through the lioness program through the female engagement team without leaders first right why couldn't they successfully integrate um you know in the same way, right? They didn't use leaders first policy with Lioness. They didn't use leaders first policy uh, for the female engagement teams. And so they had a different model and now they're choosing not to follow that. Why, right? It it begs this question.
1: And I think that's a great question. Um, I I don't have an answer to it, obviously, (laughs) Um, but no, no, I think that's a good point that there have been instances. I mean, a big conversation point surrounding the whole repeal was that, of course, women have been serving on the- frontline so to mm-hmm. speak already and that was the point of the lawsuit to begin with was that right. by by denying these women's combat experience you're preventing them from
2: taking credit where credit is due and therefore Exactly moving forward in their career. And and you're putting them in danger right? I mean the the female engagement team model was putting service women in danger because the way that they circumvented the rule is that you could you could only be attached to a male infantry unit for 30 days at a time. Then you had to come back to the main base Um, in, you know, say Iraq or Afghanistan, and then you would go back out and be attached to a different infantry unit. But the main goal was that you had to spend only 30 days in those combat areas, and then you had to spend a a couple days back. And that's a lot of movement of of the female engagement teams in and out of combat zones, right? That's inviting more risk um, to their lives in order to keep the gender policy in place right in order to successfully circumvent that gender policy so again if the military was successfully able to do that it didn't use leaders first there it trained all these women for the female engagement team and the lioness team was even cruder right than that it was it was um earlier than the female engagement team they were asking people who were already deployed to volunteer for the lioness program while on deployment training them you know in 30 days in country right in these combat um you know situations and it's like, well, if you think you can do that really effectively, then you certainly can do integration a little bit more effectively um, without relying on leaders first.
0: Yeah, absolutely. We have a couple more questions left for you. And I think we we want to um focus in on combat arms and then and and kind of pick your brain on how does integration of combat arms increase the aforementioned risks to women. So now we're talking specifically not just the military in general but in combat specialties do you see that there's a difference in how women are integrated in a combat unit versus, um, you know, a non-combat specialty. So like that, that of the infantry or the armor versus, um, you know, someone in
2: in, a, you know, support role. The, in terms of the women I spoke with experiences. Yes. Yep. Um, so I, most of the women I spoke to, I started my research in 2013. So most of the women I spoke to were, um, right prior to the uh, ban being uh, lifted. And so, and they had obviously served before that. I spoke to a couple of women in 2019, probably a handful more. Um, So I can't really speak to that. I haven't seen a lot of um, differences in terms of what their experiences were with different types of units. I will say that the women who I've spoken with who have experienced combat, they do use that in interaction with other service members as sort of like a respectability pull. And so, um, like, you know, not every service member is going to see combat. Not every service member is going to be deployed into a combat situation. And so it does become this exemplar of valor and this, you know, this presentation of, you know, I am, you know, a combat soldier, a combat Marine, etc. cetera and it becomes something that that the women I spoke with could use in in trying to just command respect of servicemen who are disrespecting them it was a really interesting a really interesting finding I have in my research is that it's rape victims and women who experienced combat or were on a combat deployment that are the most vocal in the face of sexual harassment not necessarily sexual assault and it doesn't protect women who experience combat from experiencing sexual harassment. They still experience pervasive sexual harassment. But these two groups of women, rape victims and women who experienced combat, were the most vocal when somebody was harassing them. They would say like you can't talk that way to me or this is problematic, etc. Most of the women I spoke to were some, were not in these two categories. And they often had other strategies, right? They would downplay the, they would downplay harassment, they would try to pass it off as a joke, they would say it annoyed them, but they didn't feel like they could say anything to the person who was harassing them. But these two groups of women were ultimately the ones who were confronting harassers when it was happening to them. And I think that I have a theory as to why I think it happens. I think for the women who experience combat, they're able to say like, hey, I'm a part of this really rare military identity that all of us are supposed to aspire to, and you should respect me, right? The way you're acting is disrespecting like a combat Marine or a combat soldier. And that's really not acceptable. For the rape victims, I think for them, they see sexual harassment as um, emblematic of the military's sexual violence problem more broadly. And they just say, and it just reminds them of their assault and how the military didn't protect them or how the military didn't help them with reporting. And they just are done and they're they're done with it. And I have one quote in my book from a woman who said, before she was sexually assaulted, she would just try and downplay harassment she would just sort of try to avoid harassers like in one case she just never had her back turned to a certain man because he was um he would pinch women on their sides And so she then after the assault, everything changed for me. And I just would, she just would curse people out. She said, you know, she's very angry as well, but she was just like, you do not, like, don't talk to me that way. And she was like, because I didn't care. She was like, kick me out of the military. I don't care. And so because she had seen it as a part of the larger problem, it just became completely different for her. So I think that that's, really interesting. I have a paper on it, um, in violence against women that that teases out those ideas a little bit more, but I think that again, it's a tool that women can use in interaction against harassers. Yeah,
1: absolutely. I think, um, it's interesting that you, you have that in your findings because, i think there is something to be said as well then for the emotional toll that might take on female service members long term because as much as they might become the ones to become more vocal if they don't have any allies in that and they don't have the support system within within their team within their with, that they identify as a combat veteran or they identify as part of this military team and they don't have that support then i think long term that might actually feed into the attrition rate and retention problem that they're facing. absolutely Absolutely. Um, yeah. Um, I think, I think we're getting close to the amount of time we want to spend. So I think we might want to cap off with a final question, um, which is essentially what are some practical things that the military can do to prevent the culture of sexual harassment and assault across the board? What What is something that it can do if the bureaucratic, if the bureaucratic tools aren't working that we do have in place or aren't working as well as we'd hope? What, what can we look forward to and work on to improve it?
2: I really like that question and and as a sociologist we think on three levels um so the first level is the organizational or the institutional level Um, so that would be the military's rules its policies and i think the military is doing a pretty good job right there and then there's the um, individual level right so um the ways that individuals are punished or the ways that victims are treated once they come forward that's sort of that individual level how an individual goes about the reporting. Then there's this interactional level, and that's where the military is really, really not focusing its attention. Um, so the interactional level includes things like the way that a workspace is organized, the the decor in that space. Right? Is it hypermasculine? Is it hypersexual? Is it misogynistic? Right? Um, and so I'll give the example. Again, example. I was on a, a military base, and I was eating lunch at a base restaurant, and I put my chicken down, and then this, there's just um, give the ball sack a good tap was written on this milit- on this table. And it was sort of, I was told that it was a commemorative table for representing someone, some units deployment, right? So that must've been an inside joke. And so just thinking about like, okay, well, what does it mean when ball sack is written uh, like at a place where everybody's eating lunch, right? That's just sort of sexual imagery that doesn't need to be embedded in the physical military space. So focusing on the spatial what masculine or hypersexual or misogynistic things are embedded in that space. Number one, number two, um, and the military, this is a good example of where the military is trying to target the interactional level is they are deep. Some branches like the the Marine Corps and the Navy, I think are de-gendering their language. And so it used to be infantryman, and now it's infantry Marine. Right. And so um, they're going through all their documents and degendering that language. That's an example of just not normalizing masculinity as the ultimate, you know, service member, right? They're trying; they're making an effort there. The other thing um, is is making fair policies. And I know we t- we wanted to touch on the issue of race a little bit as well, but um, the military changing their hair standards, right, to reflect. Um, more than just white women's hair, right? To be inclusive of black women's hairstyles. Um, They've made that change in the last several years. That's another example of a policy, but also that's gonna affect the interactional level because I had black women in my sample who were victims of this hair policy, not just in terms of the styles they could use, but the language I think is, you cannot have any faddish hair or eccentricities of dress which are really subjective words that if someone is thinking about, um, well, what do I think is normal and what's what's normal, what's a fad, that becomes raced and gendered, right? And so I had black women in my sample who said they were often told, oh, your hair looks too faddish today when they wore their hair, um, when this one didn't straighten her hair, for example, she was told her hair looked too faddish. And so again, like that interactional level, that's reflecting in the policy. But if you Eliminate the discretion in something like faddish or eccentric, um, if you take those words out of the official policy, you're going to change that interactional level as well. And so I think also just encouraging people to stand up to harassers, encouraging them in training early um, that sexual harassment is a problem, right? Like, all the information people get about like don't leave a battle buddy behind right don't let someone who's experiencing you know depression alone they should also be told like if someone's sexually harassing someone it's your job as a soldier as a marine to stop that person from harassing someone who's supposed to be your you know your family right this whole idea of the military as a family use that value to encourage and dis- to encourage people to stop harassment and to discourage harassment altogether
0: no, I mean, I I just think that there's a lot of things that you said today that really resonated with us. And, and I know it resonated with me personally. And just that a lot of things that I've experienced or the things that I've seen, it, it's really... Um, affirming to see it reflected in research, and then to know that you're working towards actually, you know, capturing that. I know we're both really excited to read your book when it does come out here in yeah. uh, 2023. So um, I just, I think that um, the things that you bring up and the way that you articulate them has absolutely blown my mind. And I, I look forward to sharing it with with other people. Um, and and Chandler, if you have anything else you want to add, I think um, at the end of the day, uh, what you say is, is very powerful. And I, and I look forward to hearing more about
1: yeah thank you so much i really think it's powerful to end on some practical things that we can do moving forward because as much as there has seemed to be effort to improve this situation it seems a bit like it's been spinning wheels just from um the ground level i think so it's definitely nice to see that reflected in your your research and your conclusions but thank you so much for your time of course
2: um it's been amazing meeting you and speaking with you Thank you. I I really appreciate you doing this. I think that this podcast is going to be really important for, you know, service women, but also the more, you know, the civilian audience that cares about these issues. So thank you.
0: Hey folks, we hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please rate and review, subscribe and save. We want to reach as many people as possible. And these small things make a huge difference in expanding our audience. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week.